Welcome back to Blazing Trails. I'm your host, Michael Revo from Salesforce Studios. Hope everyone had a great Thanksgiving holiday. And today we are re-releasing my conversation with best-selling author, marketing guru, and founding editor of The Carbon Almanac, Seth Godin about how companies can better know and connect to their customers to build more trust. I spoke with Seth and our global innovation evangelist, Brian Solis, back in May when we released our fifth edition of the Connected Customer Report. It features insights from nearly 17,000 consumers and business buyers. You can find the report and many others by going to salesforce.com research. So let's jump right into it. Seth and Brian, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. And Brian, welcome. I'm, I'm here because uh, you and Seth are here, so hello. <laughs> well, I'm honored to be in that uh, company. So, uh, but hey, let's, so let's jump right into it. Um, I wanted to start with one key concept that came out of the research, and it's this idea of a trust-based economy, which is, is kind of a new idea. Maybe, Seth, if you could kick us off and talk about what, what the definition of trust in that context means to you. I think it's sort of naive to think that trust was uh, unimportant before. Yeah. Trust has always been the essence of what humans base their lives on. Mm-hmm. And the reason it's coming to the fore is because for the last 15 years, bad actors have been racing to the bottom, trying to uh, hustle and hype their way to just a little bit more market share. And so consumers who felt like they didn't have to mention it now do because they're buying stuff online that's not from the person who said it was made by, and it has side effects that they didn't expect. And buyer beware has become uh, a common phrase because open platforms uh, seem really good from a distance, but up close and personal, they tend to uh, betray people's confidence. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, and how are you seeing this change or in this context now, this new way the companies are having to connect with consumers with all this digitization. Are, are, are there fundamentals that have changed there? Or do you think it's kind of the same principles that have been there all along around those trusted relationships? Ooh, well, look, we have, uh, beyond the pandemic, we have all kinds of divisiveness uh, happening in our day-to-day lives and work. And trust itself has become an opportunity. Uh, and it was interesting that last year and also this year in our research, customers, business customers and consumers said the same exact thing, which was the number one transformation I want to see from businesses is for them to be more trustworthy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that creates an opportunity for businesses or anyone really who wants to become a stabilizing force during this disruption uh, to, to focus on relationships. And as Seth said, it's, it, it, it should have been something Uh, as a priority all along, but here we are. Uh, So to answer your question more specifically then about digital, well, if you think about that rapid acceleration to digitization in the last two years, I think we did so as a a matter of necessity, but now this is an opportunity to reimagine how we think beyond activating those channels. So are we digitizing old processes or are we using them new as new channels to build better relationships with customers to earn that trust and to learn more about how we can build those relationships moving forward? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
you know, there's another stat that stood out to me, which is 80, 88% of the respondents say that experience that a company provides is as important as the product or the service, which is amazing. I mean, you know, Brian, you were just talking about building those experiences. I mean, talk to me a little bit more about that is, you know, that, that shift that's happening. Yeah. You know, and, and, and again, to, you know, refer back to Seth, I mean, experiences should have been priority again all along. Uh, and I think when we think about the word experience, whether the customer experience or what have you, uh, what we're really saying is people want to feel better as they engage with you. They want to leave that encounter with the sense of being valued or that their time was respected or that their expectations were met or that businesses exceeded those expectations. But when you combine that with the data of 62% of customers said that they feel an emotional connection to brands that they buy from most, you now start to see the relationship between experience and emotion. If people feel like they're valued and that they're going to have a great experience, then they're going to remember and probably prioritize or value that brand. If people feel the opposite, then they're probably going to break that relationship. And if they fall somewhere in between that, they'll just forget about it. So clearly the advantage is on building relationships with customers like you would with anybody else, making them feel better for it. But it's easier said than done. And and there's so many things that get in the way of that. I mean, Seth, this has been something you've thought about and written about for a long time. How do you define that experience? I mean, because for, for me, there's so many different touch points and different ways to think about it. How do you think about that, that word? Well, so 88% of the people said that experience is important. That means 12% of the people didn't understand the question. Yeah. <laughs> because if you have a roof over your head and... Uh, access to the things you need to be alive. Everything else in your life is not about the acquisition of stuff. Yeah, It is about the story you tell yourself about the acquisition of stuff. People mm -hmm. don't want to feel stupid. They don't want to feel um, unseen. They don't want to feel isolated. And so they may express those feelings by buying a new kind of purse or shoes, not because they need shoes. Everyone who buys shoes already has shoes. They do it because buying the shoes opens the door to a feeling of possibility of being seen. So you mentioned, Michael, that some of these things are easier said than done. That's great. Because mm -hmm. if these things were easy, your competition would be racing to do them just the same way you are. Right. These are hard things to do because they require emotional labor, because they require not acting like a uh, monopoly but acting like somebody who understands your customers have a choice in the matter. Mm -hmm. And when we see what happens when great companies stumble, it's when they stop acting that way. I gave mm -hmm. a talk uh, earlier this week to uh, an industry where their net promoter score was negative. It is the lowest net promoter score of any industry. I'm not going to mention them, but <laughs> that's on purpose. You have to work hard at that. Yeah. And so I think that what we are talking about here is super simple. Treat people the way you want to be treated. Show up in the world like other people are watching mm -hmm. and realize that people have a choice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, and I'm... Uh, hey, Michael, I'm, I got to just jump on, build on, yeah. on that because Seth, that's, that's, that's right on. I'm curious though. Like I was playing with a concept recently. I'd love to get your reaction to it, which was, 
you know, this idea of digital and really where we failed in personalization over the last several years uh, and how we have an opportunity now to reimagine the organizational relationship with data to be more relevant to the customer, wherever they are in the journey. And I, and I thought about this idea of digital empathy, thinking, you know, that, that, that golden rule of treat people as, as you want to be treated, maybe we flip it and just treat people the way they want to be treated. And maybe, maybe this is sort of that time to really reimagine that engagement. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. let's start with this. No one wants anything to be personalized. They want it to be personal. And those are two totally different things. A mail merge makes nobody happy. And in order to pull this off, you have no choice but to treat different people differently. When a scam artist shows up and they're just trying to rip off your company, you can't and shouldn't treat them the same way you treat your best customer. So we have to get way better at understanding the difference between our best customers and strangers. You're not allowed to go into a bank with a clown mask on for good reason. Because the security guard has a history that says if someone comes in with a stocking over their head, they're probably not here to make a deposit. And what we're doing is marketers are spending all this time de-anonymizing people and snooping on them and cookieing them, and then only using that information to help them, not to help the customer. And what we have to do instead is say, what's the story this person wants to tell themselves? And how do we become appropriately personal with them, with their permission, as opposed to saying, what's the easy, systemic, database-driven solution so I can get this over with and go back to what I was doing yesterday? Mm -hmm. You know, and Brian, I'm curious, you're talking to a lot of customers about this who are trying to do this. And uh, again, easier said than done with the complexity of the data, with, uh, you know, making it truly personal for each one of those customers. Uh, how are you seeing companies approaching this? Like, what wh- what are they doing in their organizations? Who's working on this problem? Are you seeing cross collaboration between groups? Like, how 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 do companies get better at this? I'll just say it. You know, like I, I see all the time that many legacy organizations versus startups uh, are not their customers. They're making decisions about technology based on the experience that they've had forever. You know, however long their tenure has been. Uh, and that, especially in the last two years, customers have changed. They've become empowered. They've become incredibly conscious. Uh, and really, it's a mindset shift. We have to start by recognizing that we can't just neatly break down uh, customers by demographics and then by disciplines within the organization. Okay, well, service, you do this. Marketing, you do that. Uh, commerce, you do this. Really, it's just a fundamental shift in understanding that because we're not our customers, there's a lot of things that we need to make up for. We're all human beings. There's things that we value. There's things that we don't value. Uh, and we just have to do the hard stuff, not the easy stuff. We have to do the hard stuff in terms of transforming. I'll give you an example. I was, with, uh, I was speaking with a, a very, very large uh, consumer goods company this morning. And you know, one of the stakeholders said, yeah, you know, that's just, we, we deemed it as too hard <laughs> to, to make these shifts. Uh, and so we put other priorities in place and, you know, that's, that's really the answer. We've, mm-hmm. we've got to, we've got to do better. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, Seth, I was listening to, to something preparing for this interview and you were talking about the development of the hero camera and how the group that developed that or came from that background from, you know, surfing and snowboarding and knew what that experience would be like. And you said, but Sony really should have invented that because, the, you know, that was the incumbent. That's the legacy brand. 
And it seems like tapping into people's passions and to get them into the right place within an organization so that you, this work is more natural is a, is a huge challenge. I mean, how do you think about that really both for companies and then for individuals when you're looking at what you want to do? Well, I think companies uh, took advantage of an opportunity to do a hack, which is use media that is generally used by humans to have your brand appear like a human. Uh, it's an extension of you're in good hands with Allstate, right? That if it's coming to me by email, if somebody asks me my opinion and I write back, I feel like I'm writing to a person. And then when it all falls apart because they can't pull off a magic trick, their excuse is, well, you know, we're very big. And that's basically what they said to Brian. This is too complicated. We're too big. And what I am saying to these organizations, my career changed in 1983. On Christmas Day, uh, I went in at the software company where I was a brand manager at the age of 23, and I answered uh, tech support calls for eight hours because we were making software for kids. No one else was there, and I had nothing else to do, so I did. I learned more in those eight hours talking to frustrated parents and their kids than any of my peers did over three months. And if you're not answering the phone, answering the email, reading what people are sending you, understanding, oh, this customer, I know this customer's background, then basically you want to be a technocrat, but get be but be rewarded like you're a person. And you know, one of the things that you'll notice if you reach out to one of these giant bureaucracies is now they all now have the office of the president. And the, the president has never met any of these people. They're just pretending they're down the hall from the person who is ostensibly in charge. Because that's the last gasp the last place to get the customer who's so at the end of their rope that you know the next step is testifying before congress so okay now a human will talk to you well charge an extra dollar take a little bit out of your wallet and say you know what we can do we can add some humans to this equation and we can have humans who are actually going to understand who people are and what they want and what they dream of and what they desire and our competitors won't. And the fact that that's hard is a good thing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I think developing that empathy for the customer is so critical. And I mean, I experienced that working at Salesforce, a big organization. You know, I know that there are uh, salespeople who are talking to customers every day, and we're not in the marketing group, we're not <laughs> as close to that. I'm just curious, you know, how you can operationalize that. Or have you seen that anywhere, Seth, where it's, you know, that experience that you had where you ended up getting closer to customers? Is that something that you've seen operationalized well in other places? Um, well, that word is part of the problem. But I will, I will say that uh, years ago I, I spoke at Eddie Bauer, and this was when Eddie Bauer was really on a roll in the 2000s or so. And the CEO bragged to me that every single person in the room, and there were 200, had worked on the floor of an Eddie Bauer store selling chinos. Mm -hmm. That that was, in this, not for an hour, but for long, for days or weeks, selling pants to customers. And that was a key component of getting to the next job. And so I said to the group, how many of you um, have ever sold something by email? And only two people in the room had raised their hand because that was their job. Everybody else had something else to do. And I said, so it's pretty simple. 
you got a whole bunch of email addresses that people have opted in. Give everybody in the room 200 email addresses and let them start emailing people back and forth. Get, sell them a pair of chinos. And as far as I know, they did it and it worked. <laughs> because if you can't sell a pair of chinos one person at a time, what makes you think you can sell a pair of chinos when you send out a million emails? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, and it's interesting because now, I mean, it sort of leads into the next question I was talking about, thinking about, which is, with all of the changes in the ways that we need to communicate with customers now, you know, it, the loss of so much in person, some of that may come back, so many different channels, it's, it's so complicated. And the ability to tell this empathetic story that's consistent, that makes sense is just harder and harder. How should we be thinking about that, Seth, if you want to? Well, I'm ready for Brian to chime in because he's so much smarter than me about that. Seth knows this. I've been, I've been on this, this path about the humanization of people for my entire career, looking at, you know, for example, adding an apostrophe as to customer experience. What's the customer's experience? What is it that they experience? And let's humanize that. Where are we failing them? Where can we be better? Where can we meet their basic needs? And the word empathy, Michael, is more important than I think we even give it credit for to understand, which is just uh, look at the world and feel the world and walk in the world the way someone else does and allow yourself to embrace it. Just feel it. Since the 1960s, we've consistently used technology to, uh, and no, 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 uh, no, no pun intended or, or no, no, no fouls here, Michael, but uh, <laughs> to operationalize, <laughs> to, to scale uh, you know, those services and processes. And essentially, we got further and further away from our customers. And yeah. that led to the need for you know, all kinds of emergency scenarios like retention departments and office of, of, of the CEO having mm -hmm. to be established because, oh, lo and behold, they're not having the best experiences possible. Let's just look at chatbots. I'm pretty sure none of us here have had exceptional chatbot experiences. In fact, they probably borrowed from the IVR playbook of, hey, let's just use this new window and platform to uh, help customers want to hit zero or say representative more and more and more. And that's really what it's about. It's, it's a long answer to the question of just understanding that empathy is really about allowing yourself to become the person you want to really reach and build a relationship with. Like you said at the beginning, Trust is the number one thing that they value. And trust is a key part of any relationship. And you have to earn that. Mm -hmm. I mean, just to jump in here. Yeah. If, if I was uh, a, a shareholder or a CEO of a company that put in the chatbots that I'm seeing these days, in which you get three backs and forths in which it is pretending it is a person before you realize it isn't a person, I would call an all hands on meeting. I would ask who put it in and then I would fire them in front of everybody. <laughs> Because the fact is, that's like somebody walking into your office, stealing 100 laptops and reselling them on eBay to make a profit. They stole from you. They stole from you because it made their P&L look better for a week. And what they've basically said is, I can cut our costs for a little while in exchange for making it so that many people will not trust us. Mm -hmm. Why would you do that? Mm -hmm. That makes absolutely no sense to me. It, it is a symptom of companies who, A, want to bureaucratize and depersonalize their relationship because it feels safer, and B, setting themselves up to have a race to the bottom. And the race to the bottom, I think, is really worth highlighting because uh, Salesforce has done some really good work in 
outlining to organizations how certain things can be automated mm -hmm. and systematized. But some people have misused this to have a race to the bottom because they think they have no choice. Mm -hmm. And that's you know, the same kind of person who puts a bot on Twitter to pretend that, you know, just to make their numbers go up. Mm -hmm. They say, well, I, if I don't, somebody else will. I have no choice but to do this. That's the way the race goes. And the thing is, don't enter a race you're going to lose because mm -hmm. there are people who are willing to make more shortcuts than you. There are people who are willing to disappoint more folks in the short run than you. And so just don't enter that race. Refuse and say, you know what? This is a place for people who will pay a little bit more but get more than they pay for. But if you would rather go someplace where it's cheaper than anybody, feel free. Here's a link to them because we don't want you as our customer. We want to collect the people who will ask more from us and pass fairly for the, the privilege. Mm -hmm. You know, Brian, it makes me think that as organizations develop more of this technology and use it, you know, you're going to run into these situations where it's, it's not working the way it should. You, you, it's not inherently bad, the technology or the use of chatbots. How do you look at how to monitor that, how to get feedback, how to understand how to, how to do that in a way that is going to not hurt your brand and be a good experience? 71% of our uh, of consumers who responded to, to the survey said that they switched brands at least once this year. And if you ask them what was the most important thing that they wanted to see from engagement, uh, from brand engagement, it was communicating honestly and transparently. I mean, that is just not a lot to ask. Just mm -hmm. be human. And, you know, another thing that was on the list was treat me as a person, not a number. Whoa. Yeah. So to Seth's <laughs> point, personal versus personalization, uh, mm -hmm. that's where we are. Uh, and I think we've spent many decades as this race to the bottom. And surely we, with this acceleration of digital transformation in the last couple of years, I think we, we got caught blindsided where it could have been an opportunity and it still is to do the right thing. We just digitized things faster using old metrics and processes. But I think this is that moment here. You know, that's, that's what this research is saying is let's, let's, let, let's be more meaningful. And the technology mm -hmm. lets us do it now. And, and for people who haven't uh, disconnected because they're frustrated at us that we're not focusing enough on ROI, I'm going to save them from leaving too soon, which is, it's really simple. Share of market is different than share of wallet. Mm -hmm. And the return on investment of trust and loyalty is dramatically, dramatically higher than it is on market share. And what that means is you have supply chain problems. You have staffing problems. You can only serve a finite number of customers. And when you pick your customers, you pick your future. So you should do that. If you, you, know, if you think about the spam that uh, comes with you know, the note about the, the king and the briefcase and all the money, that spam is you know, greetings and salutations. That f spam is filled with typos and poorly conjugated words. Why is that after all these years and all of the millions of dollars, it is so poorly written? And the reason is because smart people don't respond to it. It's a filtering thing. They have picked their customers. The customers they've picked are people who are stupid enough to get past it because otherwise they're going to waste their time and the smart people will end up not sending them the money. Well, in our case, we're talking about a different kind of filter. 
And the filter is, if you're the kind of customer that's satisfied with a bot that tricked you into thinking it was a person, and then you're willing to be treated like a number all so that you can save $7, guess what? You're not that good a customer because I'm only going to make a nickel on you. On the other hand, if you're the kind of customer that wants an actual response from an actual human who knows your purchase history and treats you like a person with dignity and respect and connection, you're the kind of customer I want because I can satisfy you and I know that you will pay me for the privilege. Mm-hmm. You know, when you were talking about the, the ROI on, on trust, it brings up the sort of perennial debate between brand marketing and demand gen marketing, I think for all the marketers listening have uh, experienced and Hey, we can't really measure brand. We know it's good, but I don't really know how to measure it. So I'm going to go back to demand gen tactics. Seth, can you just talk a little bit about the difference there, some definition around brand versus demand gen and, and how can you settle that debate for us across all these organizations? So Lester Wonderman was on the board of Yoyodyne, the company that invented email marketing all those years ago. And Lester also invented the term direct marketing. So I'm going to call it direct marketing if that's okay. Yeah. The difference between direct marketing and brand marketing is this. Direct marketing is measured. It's measured in the short run. You find out if it works and then you can buy more of it. And so we have multi-billion dollar companies that scaled really fast because if an advertiser can measure it and it works, they buy infinity Mm -hmm. immediately. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot to be said for the scalability of direct marketing. And then there's brand marketing, which is unmeasured, which is not asking for an order today because we're trying to earn a story in people's heads. And where people are falling down, particularly in something like podcast advertising, is they try to do both at the same time. Podcast advertising is not a useful place to do direct response because people are on their exercise bike or in their car. They're not going to remember the URL that you had to track which thing they were listening to. So when you load up your ad with all of that nonsense, of course it's going to score poorly because it's not a good brand ad and it's not a good direct ad. And what we're seeing on the internet whether it's you know email that borders on spam or pop-ups and pop-unders and banner ads and the rest of it, is people are measuring stuff because the folks who they work for and the folks who are selling to them make it easy to measure stuff. But if you're going to do brand ads, do brand ads and don't measure. And if you're going to do direct ads, do direct ads and measure, but don't get confused. Mm-hmm. So there's no measurement for brand advertising. Is there? Should you be looking at something over a longer period? period? How, how, how do you assess whether it's working or not? And this is one of the reasons CMOs generally last 18 months in their job. <laughs> because they promise the CEO that it's going to work, but then there's no actual way to measure it. Mm-hmm. And what we know is that the single best brand advertising is to create a better product and a better experience. That that's where most of the money should go. Yeah. And then the ads, well, the ads in the 60s and the 70s you could be an idiot and do well. You just had to run a lot of them. Not true anymore. Um, but the best brand marketers I've ever met don't measure. They spend the money. They go with their gut. Because as soon as they start to measure, they screw it up. Interesting. Brian, you were talking about brand loyalty and, and in, the, in the research, seeing that uh, people are switching brands more uh, in this pandemic time or just in the past couple of years. Talk to me a little bit more about that in terms of why do you think we're seeing more of this 
change in, in brand loyalty? Is the landscape changing, the way people are thinking about brands? What, what's behind that? There's a lot behind it. Uh, I'll, I'll share some of our research, but also just think about you or those who are listening uh, around how you've changed in the last couple of years. You know, we, we had the time, we had the stress from the pandemic and climate change and civil injustice and unrest and division in, in, in almost everything we think and do these days. And it changed our values. It changed our definition of happiness and success. Uh, mm-hmm. and to give you an idea, one of the things we, we captured this, this year was that 66% of customers said they st- stopped doing business with the companies whose values didn't align with theirs. And that's up from 62% the year before. So we're now starting to see really that, that personal importance that Seth talked about earlier. This is really about humanity, about relationships, about businesses having an opportunity to earn trust and to do the right things beyond measuring the old things, which are, well, how, how well are we doing on that front? Uh, if we promised you a better experience, how are we doing there? If we said you're going to have great service, did you have great service? Uh, because now we we certainly we certainly can like just before we can create metrics that document the right things that people value. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in the report it says 88 percent of consumers are expecting companies to state their values, but then people are saying that they're really seeing only 50 percent are doing that from what they're seeing, and I'm curious. Why is that? It seems so fundamental to be able to do, but why are so many companies missing there? Yeah, Seth, I, I, I kind of want to throw this to you because certainly the communication of values could be something that is not unlike vision and mission statements and CSR programs. <laughs> how, how are you seeing that? Some corporations have gotten good at telling stories and pre- presenting a front to consumers that they are living their values. But many corporations, particularly public ones, feel trapped and have no choice but to cut corners thinking that that is their job. And I believe that the purpose of culture is not to enable capitalism. The purpose of capitalism is to improve our culture. And we are seeing more and more people showing up and saying, This Patagonia jacket cost me extra, and I'm not going to buy as many clothes because I own it, Mm -hmm. but I have watched them, and I have seen what they do in the world, and this is my religion. This is something that aligns with who I want to be. Mm -hmm. And let's acknowledge that the Western consumer, the privileged Western consumer, is super spoiled. What do you mean I only get the things I order in 27 minutes? I can't get them in 15? And um, so we've got these two things contrasting with each other. On one hand, we would like to feel a certain feeling when we engage trading our money for stuff. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, we're greedy and selfish and in a hurry and trading for convenience. And I think that the crisis is just going to get louder because it's really hard to have both at the same time. Mm -hmm. And some companies that do a really good job of talking the talk are getting a lot of credit. Um, But it's impossible for a company with 1,000 or 5,000 employees with a million customers to be what every one of those customers wants it to be. Mm-hmm. It's impossible. Mm-hmm. We're just telling ourselves a story. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's like something we talked about earlier in the conversation about choosing mm-hmm. your customers. What, what's that process of 
you don't choose that story. Hopefully that's an organic story. It's real to the organization. But as organizations grow and change over time, how do you maintain that or even create it in the first place? If the company wasn't necessarily started from a place of values, that it was a business that was, you know, designed to make money in the world. So do you make up a story? What, yeah, what do you do? I think you, that's your job. And, um, you know, Louis Vuitton, a multi-billion dollar company, if you walk into one of their luxury goods uh, stores and start asking about the value of buying, you know, this $12,000 handbag, they will not defend it. They'll say, there's a store down the street where it's one-tenth the price. See ya. And, you know, my wife owns and runs the biggest gluten-free bakery in America, Craft Bakery, and she's really clear about who it's for and what it's for. And if you come in and say, do you have something that's made with coconut sugar? And then she'll say, maybe you should just have a banana because this isn't for you. This is what we make. We don't yeah. make that. We make people who want this. Yeah. For things for people who want this. And that's the only way to be coherent. It's the only way to actually have values mm -hmm. is to say, we're putting up a flag for this kind of customer and these customers, we love you. We respect you. Here's the phone number of our competition. You should call them. Right. And I mean, and how do you do this in a more collaborative environment? That, that That's what's tricky too, which is, you know, if you have a strong CEO or it's a smaller company and it's clearly driven by somebody's vision, but many, many places are not like that. There are collaborations. There's a lot of people involved in the decision-making. How do you, how do you navigate that? Well, I think the most important thing is for somebody, probably the CEO, to make one simple decision. Either your motto is you can pick anyone and we're anyone, or your motto is we are specific. Mm -hmm. You should pick. And then you can have whatever committee you want honor whichever you chose. But if you're specific, specific for who? What exactly are you here to do? Would we miss you if you were gone? Right? Like, you know, you, you want to go buy a rolling suitcase? There are 400 rolling suitcase companies. If one of them went away, would you miss them? Mm -hmm. Probably not. Right. So they don't stand for anything. They're not specific. If you can figure out how to be specific and, you know, Salesforce is certainly specific yeah. about who it's for and what's it for. Right. You can build a company that has legs. But if your motto is you can pick anyone and we're anyone, I'll probably pick someone who isn't mm -hmm. you. Brian, what's your, any, any thoughts on that? I think my head's going to fall off from nodding so much. <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm in agreement, of course. I, I mean, look, uh, you know, the one thing that I'm, I'm asked all the time is, is uh, you know, how do you, how do you bring about that change if your board isn't on board with that change or your shareholders yeah. aren't on board with that change? And, you know, there's no no playbook that says, hey, follow this checklist. I mean, you really have to believe that you're trying to make a difference. So, you know, Mark Benioff, I think, is, a, is a, a shining example of using business to do good in the world and mm -hmm. how he communicates with, with shareholders, but also forms a board around him and now Brett, you know, around helping to make the right decisions that are good for everyone involved, including our planet. Uh, and that's, that's, that's powerful, uh, but it's also bold and, and takes courage and really goes against how Seth brought up uh, around th this, this misunderstanding, I think, of the role capitalism could play in, in the world. Uh, and I, I can't tell you how 
important it is in these times to actually take a stand uh, and take the right stand rather than constantly, you know, I think about, if you think about many of the popular conversations, I, I won't open any, any uh, unwanted doors, but if you think about many of the popular conversations consuming our news today, you know, there, there are people really trying to create communities of those who want to have positive impacts and those who are building communities of those who just want to tear things down. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I really, I really think that if you can pull away from the noise and give yourself a place to breathe and allow that moment to in really influence a, about what you do differently moving forward. I don't know that businesses have other better choices for the long term. And that I, I think I guess what I'm getting at is maybe we need a new genre of leaders. I, I don't I don't I don't believe that leaders, executives, boards are immune to the change that's necessary to be successful in a new world. And that's really what this is about. Mm-hmm. Seth, I wanted to loop back a little bit on the specificity, which is so important. What's the process? What questions should you be asking yourself? I'm, I'm just curious about that journey, how, how, you, how you do that. Often in interviews, people will ask me to name marketing campaigns or companies that uh, are great role models or that impress me. Mm-hmm. And I've, uh, for 20 years, relentlessly refused to answer it because as soon as I mention a company, something bad happens to them. Um, but what I say instead is, you name a company. And if you name a company, you will have named one that is specific. You will have named one that is in the story business. You will have named one that you would miss if it were gone. I don't have to name it. If it mattered to you, there was a reason. So what I would say to the board, to the CEO, to the hangers-on, to anybody is, who do we want to be like? Who is our role model here? Which, what, 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 who came before us or who is standing near us that is doing it right? And whoever you name will be someone who's doing it specifically, who can easily say, no, we don't do that. And we don't serve these people, but we do that. And we do serve these people. Yeah. And I think that specificity can change over time. It has to. Okay. Well, it's been a great conversation. Seth, thank you so much for joining us today. A pleasure. A pleasure. It's always good to see you guys. Brian, thank you. Great to talk to you again. Yeah. You know, it's great to talk to you again, Seth. It's always a pleasure. Thank you so much. That was Brian Solis, Vice President and Global Innovation Evangelist here at Salesforce, in conversation with best-selling author and founding editor of The Carbon Almanac, Seth Godin. And you may be wondering, what is The Carbon Almanac? Well, it's a collaboration between hundreds of writers, researchers, thinkers, and illustrators. Rich with essays, graphs, cartoons, tables, and resources, the Almanac provides credible and authoritative information on carbon and its impact on the climate that's easy to access and share. Check it out by going to thecarbonalmanac.org. Thanks for listening today. And if you like this episode of Blazing Trails, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Michael Revo from Salesforce Studios. Thank you.